Spencer, our listeners, if they are listening to Art Podcast, chances are they're a fan of podcasts in general. And right now, our friends at Strava have launched a completely new podcast. It's called Athletes Unfiltered. It has lots of stories of athletes overcoming adversity, doing cool things in their community. I, you, you listen to the episode. To tell me what this podcast is all about. Yeah, so they've got two out now, and I listened to the first one just recently. It's really was very different for me because it talked about three different runners. Uh, so, you know, I'm not much of a runner. I know you are, Fred, but personally, not really my thing. But these people who they, they told their stories of, of overcoming adversity and finding a way to carry on as runners and to live happier, better lives. They talked about this. The one that really struck me was this guy, Chaz Davis, who at a very young age, and I think it was like in late high school years, he he went blind. It was a sort of degenerative disease, uh, gave up running, sort of became unhealthy and out of shape, and then found his way back to running. And now he uh, competes in, in all sorts of running races as a blind athlete. Very inspiring. Uh, and uh, like I said, there's a second episode out as well, too. So right now, uh, you can find the Athletes Unfiltered podcast on iTunes, at Stitcher, Podbean, anywhere where podcasts are found. We're also going to link to it in the text body of this podcast but again strava creating podcasts man i want to i want to listen to this stuff yeah it's good stuff thanks to strava for sponsoring the velo news podcast all right let's get on with the show Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, and I'm back here at the Velo News World Headquarters after a quick trip to California, looking around the table at two other guys who were recently in California. In fact, we were all in kind of the same region of California. Spencer like, Paulison, where where were you? What were you doing? Yeah, I was like a tag team. I was in the uh, Los Angeles area, uh -huh. up, up near Calabasas, for a little press event called Gravel Camp, where we rode gravel bikes and checked out some of the riding in that area, which is pretty cool, although it was kind of rainy the first few days I was there. And then I did Bonk Breaker's tran Tranquilo ride, which is not very tranquilo. It's oh, yeah. actually pretty hard. Mm. I did that on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I had the opportunity to speak with Garrett Thomas. Garrett Thomas. G. It's easier if you just yeah, say G. I saw the photos on hard, your... Hard to uh, pronounce. Hard to pronounce. saw the photos on your Instagram. Sounds like you met him at some fancy place in Malibu where yep. they're like uh, Veyrons and like BMWs and just crazy cars parked out front. I know LA, real, real car culture. I met him pretty early. So I think a lot of those people were probably still sleeping one off. Yeah. But uh, the brunch was exceptional. I mean, we're talking King Crowd... King crab legs Whoa. and all sorts of stuff, just like a feast of a brunch. See, folks, when you work in cycling media, sometimes you find yourself eating a nice lunch with king crab or brunch eating a king crab legs. That's pretty much the only perk, though. Well, the occasional gravel ride. Dane, you were also in Southern California. You were at Team Rally's uh, training camp. Give us a couple highlights from the training camp. Well, uh, in the food department, since we were just on the food kick, uh, yeah, rally pro continental team, not quite skies level. However, I did enjoy a really strong burrito, mm. thanks to that team. Uh, probably the, the most memorable thing that, that uh, I was able to see with rally, every year they have a uh, sort of a time trial championship at their training camp. There's a little, I don't know, 10K section of road, 15K section of road up, uh, 
uh, maybe like an hour from Oxnard where they have their their uh, training camp base, and all the guys just go all out trying to be the best time trialist of uh, Rally's winter training camp. Unsurprisingly, youngster Brandon McNulty took the win. And uh, big bragging rights for him. Nothing else. There's, you, you win nothing else, but bragging rights are important. They don't get any special stripes, jersey sleeves? No, no, you don't get anything really. But, you know, the admiration yeah. of your teammates, one journalist was there, me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so big deal for, for Brandon. Well, we're going to talk more about that later in the program because Rally have big ambitions for 2019. They are going back across the Atlantic to race in Europe. They got invitations to uh, Flesh Wallone. Tour de Suisse, they'll be doing other European races. Dane was there with the story. Uh, I was in California, guys, uh, doing a little research on a story about DIY racing, how to put on your own bicycle race. Shadowed a promoter out there, guy who I know from college, who puts on his own event, and it was it was a total adventure. At some point, like zooming around Brentwood with fancy people everywhere, spraying um, chalk on the ground like course markings and people are like what what type of graffiti are you doing in my zillion dollar neighborhood uh at other points having to like reroute courses due to mudslides it was great there'll be a whole story on it uh but guys before we talk about rally before we talk about brandon mcnulty winning time trials against his teammates we have some news to get to and the big news was that the two down and the opening race of the world tour season Capped off, well, it, it wrapped up this past weekend um, in in Australia as the tour down under. Oh, I get it. Could yeah. have been New Zealand. You know, yeah. you got to clarify. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was going to make a joke about that's what your uh, that's what a proctologist does. Oh, no. Nah. Mm. Job description, tour down nah. under. No, <laughs> <laughs> mm. oh, we should cut that. Uh, Daryl Impey, though, came away with the uh, win. Two in a row. Two in a row. First repeat De- winner. Defended his championship. Uh, Richie what, a, Port, what a thriller. What a thriller. Richie Port won on Old Wollonga again. Wollonga. But we had some controversy come out of this race because stage five, uh, Caleb Ewan won the sprint in a close duel with Jasper Philipson of Team... Currently with UAE. UAE. Yep. And uh, Ewan was subsequently relegated for a headbutt. Yeah. We guys, we got to talk about headbutting. Good old-fashioned headbutt. What role does headbutting play in pro cycling these days? This headbutt did not occur during the sprint. It happened several hundred meters before these guys unleashed their sprint. But nonetheless, um, Caleb Ewan was relegated. And Spencer, sounds like he was none too pleased about that. Well, and yeah, and I think he's he's pretty adamant that this headbutt was was for the greater good. His quote was, quote, I wanted to protect myself in the whole peloton against a crash. So really takes one for the team, does that little headbutt. Yeah, sure, he ended up winning the sprint. But really, guys, the headbutt, that was for you. That was to make sure no one crashed. So now, according to UCI cycling regulations, and I'm reading directly from the rule book right here, deviation from the chosen line that obstructs or endangers another rider's or irregular sprint, including pulling of the jersey or saddle of another rider, intimidation or threat, blow from the head, knee, elbow, shoulder, hand, etc. So basically, uh, headbutting is on the same level as intimidating or threatening during the sprint. They have a lot it's a pretty broad um, rule governing what you cannot do in the sprint, but I, I headbutting is specifically called out. Well, you know who knows a lot about headbutting in sprints, Fred? Who's that? Robbie McEwen. And he had something to say about this as well. He said, I don't think it had any bearing on the result. There's always a fight for position in sprinting. 
fight, emphasis on fight there, my emphasis, that was my area of expertise. And I think it's an overreaction. It was his area of expertise. I remember a really great headbutt one time. Was it Zobel who was the target of his headbutt back in the day? I, I can't remember. It was very aggressive. There was just a head flying around. Um, Must be an Australian thing. Yeah, it could be. Here's the thing, though. I've watched this replay over and over again, and the only camera angle they have is top looking down. And, you know, it's an interesting dynamic going on because these guys are one, two, three, four, five riders back. And basically, uh, Ewan and Philipson are both fighting for Peter Sagan's wheel. In this clip I'm looking at right now, they, they both have equal, I would say, opportunity to get on the wheel. One guy, you know, Philipson's on the right, Ewan is on the left. And as they move in, I'm doing a slow motion replay. Oh, woo. Ewan veers right, bumps Philipson out of, out of the way. So Philipson now does not have the wheel. But Philipson doesn't even, he doesn't, doesn't even bump his way in. He just kind of nudges back over and regains the wheel. And that's when the headbutting occurs. So... The whole time I've been thinking about this through the lens of Jasper Philipson, because Dane, Jasper Philipson is young, he's hungry, he's aggressive. Last year he was on uh, Hoggins Berman Action, and what what did we see from him at that stage one of the Tour of California? Yeah, we, we were on uh, Long Beach. There was a sprint, and Philipson was the young guy mixing it up with the likes of Fernando Gavidia, and uh, you know, Cav was at that race, Kittle's at that race, and I remember some some serious. Argy bargy, as the Brits like to say, between mm. Philipson and Gaviria in the finale. A little little elbow action, I think it was. It was elbows to the degree that Gaviria grabbed Philipson by the neck afterwards and like had a stern talking yeah. to him. And I think everyone was like, wow, look at this young kid. He's, you know, punching a little bit above his weight class, trying to throw elbows into Fernando Gaviria. And Gaviria had words with him. But here he is punching against, you know, against Caleb Ewan. Well, and... Uh, didn't you say that that rule also includes elbows as something you can't use to hit someone? <laughs> I mean, I, it, I feel like this rule is it, it has good intentions, but I mean, practically, it's it's just crazy. I mean, people are always touching elbows and shoulders in the sprint. It's not like you can completely eliminate that from a bunch sprint. Yeah, the headbutt's a little more obvious. It's easier to to perceive on a TV, but. Uh, I guess to, to to Caleb Ewan's point, yeah, maybe there is good reason to use your head to kind of let someone know that you're there and that you aren't going to be moved because sometimes it just comes down to a matter of protecting your position because if someone's just not aware you're there and they come in on you, that can that can be the one the thing that causes a crash. Yeah, in Ewan's defense, to me, it doesn't look like a doesn't look like a malicious headbutt. It doesn't look like he's throwing his head out there trying to hurt anybody. It's. I think it is more of a fighting for position. Not that that makes it okay or legal, but I, I think uh, it, it was more of an incidental kind of contact than I've seen before. I think it's one of those things, though, that it's very obviously a headbutt. And when it's that obvious, when there's tape of it, you have to do something because it's just a matter of time before a clip ends up on the internet and everyone's pointing at it and saying, look, you can see the head. You know, here's let's give it the Zapruder film action back and forth, head, butt, head, butt. And when it's that blatant, you have to uh, legislate. Plus, it just guys, just don't don't headbutt. It's kind of like, you know, there. Yes, it's very dangerous. Would never want anyone to do it. But it also looks stupid. I think for mm. the um, the aesthetic pleasure of cycling, we just mm. don't want to see people's heads 
banging around, flying into each other during a sprint. Yeah. It's all about the beauty of this great sport we have. <laughs> World's most beautiful sport and guys are just bashing heads into each other. All bloody and, yeah, gross. Uh, well, I believe that gave Jasper Philipson, was that his first world first tour? First world tour win. Yeah. yeah, like three, four, five days into his world tour career because you know, he had just come off a season with uh, action. It's just 20 years old, so pretty cool for Philipson, although I'm pretty sure he would prefer to get his first world tour win not that way. It's true, but I will say this does bode well for the guy because a, he's strong enough to be in those sprints, but B, he does seem to have a, an aggressive enough attitude to not back down from someone like Fernando Gaviria or Caleb Ewan, even if it does draw the occasional headbutt. What do we think of this guy? You know, when was the last time you were at a job and some 20-year-old came up and was just started like bossing you around at your desk? Uh, we keep the interns in line usually. There's not too much trouble with them. <laughs> I do wonder if that dynamic that dynamic had to have played in it too right Caleb Ewan established sprinter all of a sudden this 20 year old kid who's known for being a little aggressive you know Gaviria had to grab him by the neck and all of a sudden he's the one that's elbowing you out of the way yeah this isn't exactly the same scenario but you do often hear about this occurring in races where more pro continental teams are blended in with world tour teams and there's sometimes some drama there where the world tour teams We'll kind of we'll kind of try to put the pro continental riders in their place, and they don't really like it when when they're being challenged by these riders who are ostensibly on a lower tier of of the sports totem pole. So yeah, there's always a pecking order, I think, especially when it comes to sprints when there's such a limited real estate and there's there's a lot of egos at play. It's true, but you know, to be a sprinter, you have to be aggressive. You have to be. You, I like you, it. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know. Oh yeah. Chapeau to the kid. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Don't crash anybody, Asper. Yeah. If you, yeah. You're lucky Ewan saved you, man. If it wasn't for you and you... He was doing it for the whole crash. Yeah, he did it for you and for everyone else. Uh -huh. So thank you, Caleb Ewan. <laughs> I know. I'm going to keep coming back to that, like headbutting someone for their own good. Yeah. For the safety of others. Yeah, exactly. Uh, guys... So, Spencer, you were in California, as you mentioned before, to talk to Gary Thomas. Yes. Um, our Andrew Hood was at the Tour Down Under, and he uh, caught up with Luke Rowe, teammate of Garrett Thomas, to talk to him about Thomas's win at the Tour de France, what it meant for Welsh cycling, why Garrett Thomas seemed to have so much bad luck before this Tour de France, and what it meant for Team Sky as well. So, let's check in with Luke Rowe. See what he has to say about Garrett Thomas. So coming, speaking of Wales, I mean, uh, Garrett Thomas winning the Tour de France. Could you uh, imagine that happening? Was that a surprise to you? Yes and no. I've seen how good he was throughout the whole year and then during Dauphiné. And the way he won Dauphiné, he was, I mean, he lost time in the prologue due to a crash come back and smashed it and uh, after that I thought yeah this guy can do a good GC but can he win you know he hadn't yet ever been in the top 10 in a Grand Tour yet alone compete for the win but secretly I thought yeah you know he's, he's got a chance here but for it to finally come off you know for three weeks everything's got to go perfect you need a smooth run you need the right parkour um, and that just happened for him and he was he was incredible he was in my opinion by far the strongest rider in the race um you know, last year. So, uh, and obviously, yeah, being a, a Welshman, um, countryman, fellow countryman of mine, and now you can see what it's really doing to Wales in particular with cycling now. We got Gareth Bale. 
Yeah, Gareth Bale, Ryan Giggs, the names that people always normally say. Right. Um, but yeah, I think he's you know certainly up there with the the greatest sportsman and sportswoman of uh, of Wales's history ever um, to win to win the Tour de France. That puts him up up with the greats. So uh, yeah, like I said before, it's a great time to be involved in the sport for for me being Welsh and, and a British athlete. Because that was really the case for. Uh for Garen Thomas, you know, he was have a crash, he'd have some bad luck, something would always happen to him. He never had a chance really to show what he could do in a Grand Tour. Yeah, I mean, I think it's no secret he, he crashes quite a lot, doesn't he? He likes to, uh, you go a week without him crashing during a race, it's been a great week. So, uh, <laughs> and that's what I mean with, and actually not necessarily always his fault. He's actually quite a good bike handler. It's just, he just seems to get unlucky quite a lot. And the year before crashing out the Giro and then the Tour, neither of them his fault but it's just it's just cycling that's the way it goes so um, yeah this this year sorry yeah last year in Tour de France it just went perfect for him yeah I mean the parkour was perfect for him and day by day it's just went textbook you know you, you, you couldn't have written it better so uh, yeah all the, all the stars kind of aligned what was it like inside the team bus I mean uh you know, we've heard the stories in the past between two captains of the yeah. same team, tension, rivalry. Didn't seem like you guys have that. No, no, I think we went in with Froome as leader and G as backup. They weren't on a level, level playing field. Uh, G, was, G, G was backup, but, you know, we supported them both really well and gave them both the best opportunity and we looked after them, them both almost equally, you know. Um, and then I think it, as the race went on, you know, Froome was trying to step on the front foot and, and gain that time back but it, it became apparent that you know it was quite G was the strongest guy and, and he was in a great place um, and as the race went on it just shows the class of Froome really that he you know he was going into the last few days he was willing just to back back G and just that, that just shows the class of the guy he's won the Tour de France four times and he's fighting for a podium and uh, he just took that in his stead there was no there was no tension it could have easily been tension you know, you're a four time sure. champion and he's going into the, the last the last week in third third place or second, third, fourth whatever he was and uh, and that just shows the class of the guy really so yeah chapeau to him and yeah chapeau to G for winning at the same time you know was that something you guys worked out in between the team or was it something almost just natural that came out or was there like discussions in terms of the tactics or how you handle that situation between yourselves and for sure there was a lot of discussions a lot of uh, meetings behind the scenes but for us it was we didn't see any of that you know it was kept quite basic um, each day the, the goal was simple keep the jersey if Froomey can take time great if he can't no worries as long as we keep the jersey um, I think that's where Dave Brailsford did a super job you know man management I think he's one of the best best in the world not just the sport best in the world at what he does man management and that's where he really uh in his paycheck I guess you'd say he, he did a terrific job of kind of making sure that all stayed stayed peaceful and, and a relaxed environment and a professional environment and uh, yeah that's where he kind of stepped in and, and did a great job and yeah in terms of the discussions we had it was it was quite simple we just want to win the Tour de France yeah. with G okay with Rumi okay we just want to win it yeah. if we can get two on the podium if we can get one, one two great but we're not going to get greedy like if uh Imagine so, you try and get greedy and finish second and third. Well, that was it. I think guaranteed yeah, to say like, we'd be idiots if we actually lose the race by trying to be too cute. Yeah, yeah we look like if you, and if you try and get greedy, and and you try and get one two instead of one three, and 
you look, you set yourself up to fail. You're going to look like bonkers, right? So um, it was just a case of the most important thing is win this race. With who, we don't care. With Team Sky, that's all that matters. And then for Froome to, you know, get on the podium at the end there, um, very close to the time trial on the last stage, it would have kind of been a cherry on, cherry on the cake. Um, but yeah, first and third. It was just an unforgettable Tour de France. So Team Sky, six of the last seven tours, how, how much longer can this last? I mean, there's the big question of the, if the team will last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I mean, you got Bernal waiting in the wings, right? Yeah, right, yeah. So, <laughs> of course, yeah, as Team Sky, this is the last year. Um, 2019 will be our last crack at the Tour de France under the name Team Sky. Whether we get another contract and it's Team whatever... Um, team Velo News, maybe. I don't know. Hey, there you you want to chuck us some money? Yeah, yeah we got plenty of cash. <laughs> you know, whether, whatever it could potentially be called if a new sponsor was to come in. I mean, fingers crossed it. It would just be a sad day for the sport if the team was to fold. But uh, I mean, it's out of our hands at the moment. We just got to get our heads down, do the best we can, forget about what's happening with the team, and uh, and hopefully behind the scenes, you know, Dave, Fran, Tim, all, all, all these people can. Uh, can secure another sponsor and I'm, I'm confident that we've got the best people out there looking for a new sponsor and it's a very you know it's a great team it's a great business model to, to invest in so hopefully hopefully that all goes goes fine but in terms of the Tour de France success I don't see a reason why we can't continue having the success we've had um, I think the team's stronger than ever we've you know went into the last year with with two top GC guys obviously and if you threw Banal in the mix you'd have three of the top GC guys so how they work that out who, who's the top dog I'll leave that to them um, but yeah I think for many years to come as if we can secure another sponsor I don't see why things could change of course you know the rival the rivals are, you know we're not going to win the Tour de France every year it's just not going to happen there's going to be years where we don't and crashes happen and other guys beat us and that's great that's what the sport needs wants and, and rivalries are great but hopefully for years to come we can uh, keep repeating what we've, been, what we've been doing just a quick question about your, your own uh, year last year uh, you know you, you won the tour 2017 with uh, Froome uh, then you had that incident with your leg then you came back earlier than expected then you had that uh, Tour of Flanders uh, disqualification which <laughs> you know was questionable at the very least and then you came That's back and won the, yeah then you came back and won the Tour de France what, what, a, what a year that was for you yeah you? it was a, a year of the highest highs and the lowest lows um, I think yeah to kind of do my leg like that was was scary um, the original prognosis was it wasn't pretty it was uh, you know maybe you won't ride a bike again wow um, so super scary you know and when someone tells you that it's, it just hits you and just wow um, but yeah to come back was great earlier than expected I raced Abu Dhabi at the end of February I believe so that was way ahead of schedule then yeah the Tour of Flanders incident got pushed onto the bike path either hit a tree or go onto the bike path or take out a pedestrian or, or, whatever, or hit yeah. a pedestrian yeah. I'll put you in my shoes at 60k an hour and see what you choose um, and that was cycling's version of VAR right the, oh the man to get disqualified yeah. from that and I watched the race back and you can see on hundreds of occasions riders using bike paths to their advantage mm. and then I did it and went from 50th in the peloton to 80th in the peloton a huge disadvantage didn't mean to go there and get disqualified going on to what was the climb there was the, going on uh, to the climb around second yeah, time yeah, yeah. so yeah maybe that comment said can uh, take a trip to spec savers but <laughs> you know you gotta take these things yeah. and move on and yeah not whinge about it and look to the next race but still very frustrating 
and then yeah finished it off uh, that, that kind of that question with going back to the Tour de France and winning it with G so it was kind of a complete circle like I said the highest I just had a my son's four months old now so to have the highest of highs with you know my wife giving birth to him and then the lowest of lows with the with the injury it's been a bit of a roller coaster year but um that's sport and that's that's how we like it keep 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 the fans on the toes and uh, keep my keep my body guessing uh interesting that he said that um yeah, Garen Thomas likes to crash, or like has a crashing problem. <laughs> Had a crashing problem. Yeah, and, and also in preparation for that interview, I read Thomas's new book, which will be coming out in the U.S. Uh, fairly soon. I believe I'm not sure exactly when, but Thomas uh, Thomas does mention that Roe is one of those teammates who you know he would always stand up for 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 Thomas when during the Tour de France when there were questions about who should actually be the protected leader, and. Uh, and also that he's just a, a good wheel to follow on the bunch. Hmm. Welshmen looking out for each other. Maybe true. Uh, so, Spencer, while you were there in Malibu interviewing Garen Thomas, Dane was north of you, um, hanging out with Team Rally at their team training camp, watching them do time trials, uh, talking to the riders, talking to team management. And there's a big story around Rally this year, which is that after their first foray into European racing, which was 2018 – also their first year as a pro continental team. The team is investing more resources, more manpower uh, in growing its program in Europe. And just today, we got the news that they will be participating in uh, La Flèche Wallonne, one-day classic in Belgium, as well as the Tour de Suisse. Was that nine-day, ten-day? Yeah, I think day, it nine, yeah. Nine-day stage race. Fourth, so, fourth Grand Tour, some people call it. Yeah. So they're getting two European World Tour races uh, Dane, what uh, what has enabled this to happen? What, take us through Rally's uh, ambitions in Europe, and what does it mean for them to be doing this? So the team's been around for I think thirteen years now. So it's it's not like it's a brand new program. They were you know one of the top programs in in the domestic scene for quite a while, and for the last two years or so, we've kind of been hearing from the Rally camp that they've wanted to move up and become this European team. You know, they jumped up to the Pro Continental ranks last year when a number of other American teams did. It seemed like a lot of those other American teams were just doing it so that they could race the Tour of California, which, of course, went World Tour, couldn't have Continental teams anymore. So a team like Action, it was kind of a no-brainer. Well, we got to go pro Connie if we want that Tour of California invite. With Rally, you really got the sense that it wasn't just about the Tour of California. They actually wanted to race more in Europe. They wanted to get more time over there and continue building their calendar. And they did that last year. They got a couple of invites in Europe, uh, a number of races in Spain. They, they were at the Tour of Oman. Not a whole lot of world tour racing in Europe last year, but I think the idea was prove that we're worthy of being here, you know, prove we belong, and over time we're going to gradually get more and more invites. And as we see this week, it seems to have worked. Uh, they did get the invites to Flesh Wallone, which is a pretty big one-day race, a Tour de Suisse, which is quite a big one-week race as one-week world tour races go. It's a slow, gradual process, but it's a it's one that I think they've been doing pretty well so far. Um, they have a lot of talented young guys, and they also they have Swain Tuft this year. So I think they have this kind of combination of young guys who don't have any experience racing in Europe and a couple of uh, veterans who are going to help shepherd these guys through the European peloton. That's their kind of formula for success. We'll see if they have any uh, over the next couple of months. So the topic of an American team going to Europe with 
major ambitions to race in big races, maybe even grand tours, shepherd American talent to the top of the sport is not a new phenomenon by any stretch of the imagination. We can go all the way back to Team 7-Eleven. We saw this with um, Team Slipstream before it became Garmin, before it, came, it became EF Education first. It was Team TIAA Craft and then Team Slipstream. And I believe 2007, it was still a pro-continental team and they started racing in Europe. We saw it then we saw the Navigator's insurance team would go over and race Gent-Wevelgem and some one-day races. Um, the HealthNet team, which then became United Healthcare, would occasionally go over. And we also saw it with BMC. I mean, we all think of you know, CCC, Sperandi, former BMC team, as you know a longtime World Tour team. Which is true, but the fact of the matter is it was launched in 2007 as a pro-Conti team in the United States, and it really wasn't until 2010, 2011 that this team started getting major invites to European races. And throughout, for, for all of these teams, there's a similar pathway to getting into the big races, and that pathway includes, like you said, Dane, going over there, showing up getting good results, being aggressive, being seen, um, hiring you know, people onto your team, both riders and then people into management who have connections within the sport, who can get you meetings with people and introduce you to the right sponsors and the right race promoters, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all good and great. But guys, then, there, then there's other stuff that happens. Uh, you know, we've heard lots of conversation over the last few years about the tough go for pro Conti teams. You know, you're not a Conti team. You're you're not just racing domestically. You're pro Conti teams. Some of these pro Conti teams go on to being world tour teams, but most of them don't. And you're kind of caught in this difficult no man's land. Yeah, they have the budget, uh, a pro Conti team of, of – yeah. They're nearing some world tour teams when you're a pro Connie team. That's quite a lot of money that it, it takes to run a pro Connie team, but you're not guaranteed the invites that a world tour team is guaranteed. If you're a world tour team, you can say to your sponsors, we're going to the tour every year. That's that's guaranteed. With a pro Connie team, you got to scratch and crawl for every single invite you get. And especially if you're an American team or really any team not from Spain, Italy, or France or Belgium, you're fighting for invites that really are not often coming because they're just generally going to the Cofidises or the whatever, the Androni Giacatolis, the, the local teams in whatever the uh, European race is, they're getting most of those invites. A team like Rally, they're not getting a whole lot of invites. So that's why it was such a big coup for them. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, Flesh Wallone and Tour de Suisse, but that's a big deal for an American pro-continental team to get those two world tour invites. I mean, if you look at United Healthcare, uh, the former United Healthcare team, they were getting some invites every now and then. They never really performed at those races and uh, yeah, that was kind of it. So I think Rally knows they have this opportunity. They have to perform in them because it's all part of this process of showing that you're worthy to get more and more invites. Yeah, in addition to the business side of it, it's also challenging for the riders too because I think the majority of them aren't necessarily based over in Europe full-time or quite as extensively as a world tour rider. So there's a little more of an adjustment period that is required when they go over there. And then also the team is still working to set up their service course and get it entirely dialed in. They're still kind of a little bit split between the North American and European continents. Yeah, that was one of the big things for Rally over the off-season was setting up operations in Europe, getting a real 
solid base there. Uh, they went over to Spain to find a location for a service course, which they did. They have uh, set up a service course in Girona, and it just in talking to the various members of team management, uh, Charles Aaron, the rally owner, and Jonas Carney, who's the performance uh, manager, I think is his title, performance director, uh, just sounds like a huge hassle trying to set up a business in Spain and just go through all of the various bureaucratic things you have to go through. It's not just finding a warehouse and putting bikes in it. You got to pay taxes on everything and there's all these complicated rules and it sounds like a real pain to get all that done, but they did. So they'll be, ha- you know, they'll have that equipment, those bikes ready for their European campaign, which starts very soon. And this Spain is a good move, I think, because with those orange kits, they'll probably remind some of the locals of the old Uskatati. Right, well, they even know. Just sort of by association, they'll get some fans, a little bit of a groundswell of support in Spain and before you know it, Bada bing, they got all these crazy fans on the roadside <laughs> cheering them on in full orange. They already have the orange stuff. They're ready to go. And they're not alone in in having a service course in Girona. They actually they built uh, their service course right next to the Israel Cycling Academy service course. And I think that was partially by design. A lot of the rally guys are friends with people on the Israel Cycling Academy. And uh, they were able to kind of go to those guys and say, okay, who do we need to talk to about this thing that we need to pay? Or who do we need? They could just pop over to the ICA warehouse and, and ask them some questions, which I think was really helpful for rally when they were setting up their service course. So I think as fans of American cycling, we are all hopeful for rally. I think we're all, you know, we wish them well. Um, I did some calling around, though, to people who've been in this situation before, both on the successful and non-successful side. And it does sound like they have pretty stiff challenge ahead of them if they want to get into Grand Tours, if they want to get to the level where um, they are, you know, in the conversation for getting into these big races. The first is that, yeah, with a lot of these races, it comes down to complete to total relationships. So, you know, you have to go and make the FaceTime with ASO and with Flanders Classics and with RCS, and they have to know who you are face-to-face meetings with them regularly. It sounds like Rally has done that. They've had their management and ownership go and have lunch with them and go to these events. And so they're on the people's radar. But then, you know, you start to hear you start to hear stories of payola, of saying things like, hey, you know, we would love to uh, help you with your race marketing budget. And our sponsor may be able to contribute activation or contribute to some type of budget. And so that's another way it happens. Uh, then there is um, – for some of these races like in Italy, there uh, you have to find these race brokers. It's a broker basically who works with several dozen races. And in order to get in, you have to pay him a premium to in order to get into the race. So it's paying to get into a race is typically like eh, 300 euro a rider, 350 euro a rider. But for this guy, you're going to have to pay him 500, 600 a rider. And that way he can get you in. Yeah, and that touches on the old uh, issue with Aqua Blue folding at the end of the last season. And one of the chief complaints that uh, their owner had was just that he wasn't getting invited into the races he thought he should. And this this sort of behind-the-scenes subterfuge was frustrating him. And as an outsider from an Anglophone country, he maybe didn't know whose palms to grease. And the final component that they are going to have to figure out at some point is that entry into these races a lot of times is determined by star power. If you have star riders from that region, from that area that people recognize, that people want to come out and see. And that's always going to be a challenge for a team with North American riders. Rally has all American and Canadian uh, riders this year. They've said they want to maintain a North American feel, 
they want to have North American riders. I haven't heard them say specifically we're only going to have North American riders. But if you look at uh, Team Slipstream, for example, some of the doors started to open for them when they got David Miller, Julian Dean, Dave Zabriskie, some of these um, well-known World Tour riders. Same thing with BMC. They got Cadell Evans on the team, George Hincapi, some of these guys with established fan bases and bona fides, and just having them on the team open the door for it. And so I think at some point, Rally will have to adjust its vision, perhaps on the roster perspective to get, um, you know, get European riders onto the team, riders who have following, who have gotten great results and who, who are just recognizable. So I don't know, that's going to be an interesting one to see if, uh, if they're able to navigate those waters. Yeah, I think that the talent aspect it's kind of underplayed a little bit because you do so often read about the greasing of palms or a team like Hofidis getting the automatic invites to the French races, the Spanish teams getting those automatic invites, et cetera. But, you know, if you look at Kofidis, they have riders who actually put up results in these races. So, they're, yeah, they might get the automatic invite, but Nasser Buhani is going to win some stages at whatever one-week stage race they get invited to. So they they do belong. I mean, they actually show that they can compete. And Rally needs to do the same thing, I think. They need to take this year and actually win some stages or win, you know, a 2.1 or whatever. Some of these invites they get, they really need to take that that opportunity and run with it. I think that that puts some pressure on the shoulders of some of their, you know, quote-unquote star riders. I know Brandon McNulty is not necessarily a household name the world over, but he's their, probably their biggest star, biggest rider. Uh, Gavin Mannion, their new signing, another one of those, you know, big guys that they can expect to contend. Those guys need to win some races. They need to put up some results. And that is some interesting pressure to put on guys who are really pretty new to racing in Europe. So that's going to mean a lot to those guys, and we'll see how it goes. Dane, what kind of pressure do you think guys were feeling when you were at this camp? What were people talking about uh, in terms of, you know, expectations, level of pressure as they got ready to head over to Europe? So interestingly enough, to me, I felt a sense of zero stress whatsoever. They were had, had a very lighthearted vibe at team camp. It, was a, it seemed like a fun place to be, a lot of joking around. I mean, I know they were, they were training very hard. But I, I did not get a sense that the riders themselves were under a lot of pressure. And I actually asked Jonas Carney, the the guy who runs the team, about it. And he said that they are trying really hard not to put any stress or expectations on their riders, which is a kind of interesting uh, line to walk because you don't want to stress these guys out. But at the same time, you, you kind of need to communicate to them that you do have to win some races. Uh, it seemed like they were really trying to avoid stressing these guys out. And yeah, everybody seemed to be very relaxed. It does help when you have a guy like Swain Tuft around. He's a really relaxed guy. But I think at the same time, at some point, they are going to need to get those results. And I'm wondering how that's going to work out if they are kind of taking this laid back approach. Hopefully it all works out for them. Uh, I'm pulling for them. But uh, yeah, they didn't seem to be particularly stressed about this fact that they are going to have to win some races. You know, the other interesting component with this story, Dane, is that Rally is a team that has had ambitions in North America for a long time. But it sounds like this year with their, um, you know, big... Uh, upped investment in Europe, they are going to skip some of the traditional North American races. Yeah, it sounds like no Joe Martin, no Redlands. I think they already know that. Uh, Tour the Gila, which Rob Britton won last year, that's basically going to come down to whether they are busy in Europe at that time. I think they'll go to Gila if they don't have anything else going on overseas. But if they've got an invite around that time, I think they might even skip Gila. That's still TBD. Uh, So yeah, some of those smaller races on the North American calendar where you would have expected Rally to not only be there, but also to possibly win, 
It sounds like they're not really they're not prioritizing those anymore. They'll still be prioritizing California. I think that's probably their top priority. So the domestic calendar does have some races: California, Utah, uh, obviously nationals for the USA and Canada, and then the the Quebecois uh, World Tour One days are still big priorities. But some of those smaller, you know, domestic calendar races are just they're not as important to rally anymore, and, and they're going to skip some of them if the uh, schedule has them in Europe. Bad news for those races. That's a, that's unfortunate. Yeah, but what about like Gravel Worlds? Are they going to be oh, there? Yeah, produce some content. Yeah. Just interact with the fans. I think EF's got that covered. <laughs> what about uh, SBT, steam, the Steamboat Gravel? There's money there. Well, I should ask. I'll have to check in there. see if anybody's going. Uh, well, Rally Cycling will be following their progress throughout the year. I believe, are they starting their season off in the Middle East or is it like Valenciana? Date-wise, and... they're starting off in Mallorca, okay. uh, which is actually just coming up here. I think January 31st is the first of the four Mallorca races. And then, yeah, they're in Oman and then they have a quite a slate of uh, Spanish races. They're at Ruta del Sol uh, and, yeah, Valenciana. So. Spain, I'm telling you, those orange colors. Yeah, helpful. Those Bosque fans. They need, they need those fans because those races are hard. They're, uh, they're not World Tour races, but every year it seems like a lot of world tour teams go and and uh, they're actually in pretty good shape already and i know rally really struggled last year in those spanish races to keep with the pace of the other teams guys i think i'm gonna start my season off in mallorca this year too Ooh. just just fly it might be it might be gone uh, i'd rather do the canaries this time oh, yeah maybe. <laughs> maybe south africa i don't know whatever yeah little lousy pro cyclists in their team budgets. Uh, well, Dane, we will be reading more from Rally on the website from you as the weeks go by. But you had a great chat with Swain Tuft. Let's hear from Swain about why he went to Rally and what his expectations are for this year. I'd love to get your your perspective and, and your reasoning and all that behind uh, coming back to the domestic scene. What it's like coming back to a North American team. Why? Why you did it? And you know what what it's going to mean, kind of being back after maybe a decade since you raced in like a hmm. North American based team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've I've said it before. It, <clears throat> originally, it wasn't really on my radar. You know, like I wasn't. I'd kind of wrap my head around retirement and uh, you know when Jonas and Pat and Charles came over to to Europe I was originally just we were going to talk about setting up a service course and mm. I, I was gonna because I've been in the area for so long I could, could just gonna help them out and and then they started pitching the idea and the more I started thinking about it um, the more I realized that that was uh, something that would be really cool to to do. One, it's really hard to transition out just like from everything in the world tour to nothing. Yeah. Um, wasn't necessarily nothing, but it was just like I wanted to take some time and and figure out what that was going to look like. But uh, this opportunity came along, and yeah, it all just started clicking and making sense. Um, you know, and I talked to my wife quite a bit about it, and and uh, yeah, we were we were in because that's another big part of this. Your family has to has yeah. to be in. And yeah. Like you said, it's been a while since uh, being back in North America, but really, uh, <clears throat> it's going to be a lot of the similar races that that I do, anyways. And you know, it's not like we're coming back just to race in the states or Canada or whatever. It's I mean, most of our, my ra- most of my race schedule is. Uh, very European so 
not a lot changes and and uh, that's something that uh, was appealing to me as well because I think one of the things that we always have with <clears throat> North American riders is it's tricky to to make your way in Europe mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's something that I feel like I can help a lot of guys out with and um, so yeah here I am and and it's it's funny because I feel like it's gone full circle because uh, you know when I started it was a lot like this just like a core group of guys yeah. travel I mean when we <laughs> came from LA when I got picked up we're in a similar van to what I always remember <laughs> and a bunch of guys just you know it's, it's just how I remember you know, 10 15 years ago yeah um, I, we drove by <clears throat> the Motel 6 where Jonas and I were teammates on Prime Alliance in 2002 and I'd ridden down from Canada to that training camp and uh, yeah it's just it's it's crazy because it feels like a whole other part of my life right. and you know, like a lot of this stuff is bringing back those memories and yeah and just it's uh, it's 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 an exciting experience for for me for sure last year and the year before I would assume you were already kind of to a point where you're Maybe taking on that veteran leadership role. Is this something you have yeah, fun with? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think, um, you know, we, we focus a lot on the performance aspect in, in our sport and everything's results driven. And, um, but there's so much more to, to what goes on and to make a good rider. Um, it's very hard when you're young and especially for the guys coming from, you know, Australia, North America, South America to make your way in that world is it's uh, it's tricky and uh, you know it it's really important that you you are grounded first before you um, get thrown into the deep end there yeah. because it gets really really tough and so a big goal of mine is to be able to help a lot of these guys um, kind of make that transition you know because uh, it's where I live, and I can I can help them in a, in a yeah. lot of ways, but also through the racing and and everything else that that comes with that. Yeah. What What do you kind of bring as a leader? What do you see yourself bringing as a leader? Well, it's actually it's interesting because a lot of my uh, you know one of the things that happened with with the Green Edge crew was that uh, you know my my position was very solidified and it was very cut. You know, for me, it was. I knew my job very well, and in 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 a lot of ways, that's great because you have security. You have like, it's very clear what you have to do. But one of the things that happens in in a very hard sport is that you stop challenging yourself. To the, you know, like when you're young, it's all about challenging yourself, trying to figure out what the hell you can do in this yeah. sport. <clears throat> and that's actually been a big uh, difference for me is like I, I feel like I'm trying to get back to where I was before sure I, I kind of had that clear-cut role and um, I guess what I bring the most of these guys is experience and uh, kind of a level-headedness into a lot of those really difficult races where you know most of the time I'm gonna be saying guys let's let's take an experience from this let's not stress about you know everything working out perfect because it's not never going to work out perfect it's super hard racing and uh, for a lot of guys it'll be their first time at that level and um, it's about soaking up as much knowledge as we can but 
mostly working as a group together. And as long as everyone's giving 100%, that's all that really, really matters. Because that's all we can do at this point. Um, we can't come in and say, we have this guy sprinting and this guy climbing. It's like, it's going to be an evolving thing. And, and that's the beauty of it. And um, what you don't want is guys coming in like super stressed, thinking they're going to do this and that. And when it doesn't happen, you know, the meltdown and the kind of blowout that tends yeah. to happen. And then the depression of like a month long stint in Europe where, you know, that sometimes just happens and yeah. it happens to the best guys. So it's like, we need to get past that and just keep building on what we're doing. And uh, yeah, so I, I hope to kind of bring that, but also within the races to kind of like help guide guys to do the right thing instead of wasting energy like <laughs> wasting energy like uh it's so easy to do you yeah know, when you're young and you want to be up there you know i was just talk, talking to rob Britton, and i'm like man in these races you might be lucky to cover two attacks yep. and you have to gamble on those ones and you're all in and then it's recovery. You're just trying to recover to get through the race. Whereas, you know, in North America, and I'm not saying, you know, North America is easy or whatever. It's just a different, it's a different game because we have big wide open roads and, yeah. you know, smaller fields. And, um, yeah, so you can cover 20, 30 moves and, and still be there, you know. Whereas in, in, in Europe, it's like, you you know in a race races like Mallorca you're gonna have close to 200 guys on the line that are all flying yeah and yeah it's just a it's just a different game and it doesn't mean we we can't uh, be competitive but right. we just have to use our our bullets a little more wisely and uh, yeah that's that's really it when when you were talking to to Jonas was the was the notion that rally's really focusing on racing more in Europe did that come up a lot was that a big part of yeah of I mean <clears throat> that was a big part but the the thing that really brought me back and 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 got me sold on going all in into another year was the fact that <clears throat> you know this you know I've always followed the team and I'm you know I've been friends with Jonas going way back um, so I've always been aware of what they're doing but you know as I started to learn the inner workings of their you know their long-term idea and plan and the way that they have been doing things it's for me it, it was really appealing because they're in my opinion they're doing everything in in the right way they don't have they're not just trying to get to the the world tour get to the tour de france and just have someone chuck a bunch of money and then just buy all the right they're trying to take the right path and create a place for North American riders to have a place to grow and and strive towards because we haven't had that for a very long time now and um, for me that was super appealing because like I said it, it just doesn't really exist so much you have yeah. a lot of times in our sport a rich benefactor who just they want the quickest path to the to the the top right and they're looking you know Jonas and Charles and the whole crew are looking at it as a as a very long-term project to work with the North American riders and that was like you know it took me a while to kind of like be like really real realize and understand how important that is and um 
yeah, I just think it's so it's so necessary. And I'm always talking about development in in Canada and how we have all these great young riders, but no place to go. Well, yeah. here, here's the place to strive to, and to be part of that and grow with that. Then that's super exciting. And uh, like I said, my my time with Green Edge was awesome, but towards the end, that was a big part of my role as well. Is just you know being with the younger guys and. It's not like you're telling them to do this and that, but you kind of just, <clears throat> you lead by example and and who you are and how you conduct yourself. And that's super important when you're trying to create that culture. Because I, I say to these guys, like, this could be <clears throat> the biggest chance you have in cycling right now. You have a team that's, its capabilities are, you know, we can go to the top. But this is a team that wants to support North American riders. This is your opportunity. Yeah. So, like, look at this as one of the biggest crossroads of your life, you know. And uh, because I think, like, when I was coming up, I didn't really have that option. It was just kind of like, you know, you had to get, get results, get some luck, you know, a few contacts and this and that. And, and next thing you know, you might make your way to Europe or yeah. not, you know. Yeah. It was, there was no clear path, right? Um, and I look at the other federations throughout the world, and I, I'm most uh, familiar with uh, the Aussies and the AIS going into Green Edge. It's right. like you do your work if you have talent, you, and you're willing to do all the stuff to to make it. It's there for you, right? right, right. You have a place to go; they will take you. You know, but uh, we don't have that in, right. until this team. So, yeah, it's it's super exciting. You know, it's something that I could see growing with even when I when I stop I'd love to continue working on that yeah. kind of a project all right Swain Tuft he's just so like relaxed even his even his audio made me want to you know go sit down on a he's couch. a laid-back guy just chill which is good because there are people kind of walking in and out of the uh of the house foyer there every now and then but he was very relaxed so uh guys before we get out of here let's uh let's take a look at uh, some news stories that we're going to be keeping our eyes on for the rest of the year news stories from this week that you will be watching throughout the rest of the season uh, I'll go first. Cycling News today has an interview with Alberto Contador in which he says, I think Froome can win the Tour and Egan Bernal can win the Giro. So the story I'm going to be following is whether Contador has more basic cycling <laughs> takes coming up this year. And uh, Peter Sagan... Uh, green jersey, maybe? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Contender for green, green jersey. Contender. Yeah. Top five. Yeah, yeah. green jersey, maybe Worlds, yep. and maybe Flanders. Could top five contender for the. I don't want to put myself year. out there, though. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, Spencer, what's the story that came up this week that you will be keeping your eye on? Oh well, Andrea Taffy is he going to do Roubaix or not? He says he's trying to find a team, and some riders are saying that this is a dumb idea. <laughs> Which, come on, I mean, give the guy a break. He's fifty-two years old. I mean, have a little respect for the guy. He's won Roubaix before. He knows what to do. I love that it took riders like several months before they started saying this was a dumb idea, as opposed to like right at the beginning being like, ah, this is stupid. Yeah. If this old man gets a spot on the Roubaix roster and I don't, I will literally like throw my wheel at team management. Toffee says he doesn't think it's too late to sign a contract. He's going to go ahead. He's going to keep training. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. So don't... 
Yeah, age is just a number, Fred. Stay young, people. Yeah. Stay young. Dane, story you're going to be watching? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm watching Philippe Gilbert this season. He's trying to win all five monuments in his career. He's he's still short of Milan San Remo and Perry Roubaix. Got to get them all. Got to get, got to catch them all. Like, oh, yeah. 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 Pokemon. Yeah. Um, also, no spring ch- He's not quite Andrea Taffy, but he'll turn 37 this summer. And I'm wondering if he has what it takes for either one of those races. Uh, Milan San Remo, I think, suits him a little better. He's got that little kick at the end. But uh, it's a tough one to win. And then mm. Roubaix, he's got a good team for it, but it's a really flat race. And uh, yeah. his, his punchy skill set, I don't know. So, eh. Contract year Gilbert, though. Ooh. Contract year Gilbert. Uh, yeah. Don't yeah. rule that out. Yeah. Nope. Nope. He's got the bonus. He's in the bonus round. He, well, you know, Nibbly won San Remo. Would, would we have ever thought Nibbly was going to win San Remo? Absolutely last? not. So, so if that guy can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Gilbert, maybe, maybe. I love you guys referring to people who are old who are younger than me. You're like, well, oh, he's 30, 36. Real, real old fogey. I'm surprised he can still turn the yeah. wheels of his bicycle. I'm surprised he hasn't retired yet. Yeah, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. He's not that old. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellanews.com. Subscribe to the Bell News Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bell News at Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Bell News Podcast is produced by Bell News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the Bell News Podcast are those of the individual and and as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. <laughs>